Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking blockchain, tokenization, and the commodities markets. The theory is that a decentralized exchange, decentralized finance, and increased transparency over attributes and provenance of commodities could revolutionize how commodities are traded and accelerate the sector's ability to tackle environmental, social, and governance issues. Joining us to discuss is Clint Nelson. Clint is the co-founder of NEO, an organization focused on tokenizing trading in the commodities sector. Clint has a long association with blockchain technology. Also, Clint was an early employee of Blockstack, an early investor in Trust Token. Also, Clint has experience in decentralized networks, being a co-director of Startup Weekend. Clint, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. So we're talking blockchains, tokenization, its applications to markets, and in particular, the commodities sector. Could you just help us give us a quick overview of constitutes a blockchain and just the basic principles within it? Sure. Yeah. So the simplest way to think of a blockchain is essentially like one giant Excel spreadsheet, which a single source of truth, which is immutable and can be viewed by everyone. And so it's really powerful to essentially be able to create trust in a trustless environment of which the commodity space as an industry is pretty famous for for counterparts that don't trust each other. So the superpower of a blockchain in and of itself is really the ability to facilitate trust across these different counterparts. And the easiest way to think of that is, is like a shared view of a single Excel spreadsheet for ease of, of um, conversation that all counterparts can agree upon is a uh, is the truth, which is important. So, And any change, so as I understand it, there's a few bits of terminology here. So this is your, your it's append only, so people are only able to add to the spreadsheet. Any change in prime information changes the whole blockchain and therefore it could be seen as invalid. These hashes is this principle where you can turn any amount of information into a finite hash, which is this key that connects all the, the blocks together in that chain, right? I, I think I'm following. And the information that's held within the blockchain, within the individual blocks, is where we get this terminology of tokens. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And it's and just simply storing data, storing information, storing ownership, uh, custody. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's a elegant way to put it. A lot of the elements of this was around previously, but it was, I think, now over a, well, a decade ago, this sort of rather elusive character, Satoshi Nakamoto, published a papers and launched what was the first blockchain, which was Bitcoin. We've had you know lots of others come along, but can you just give us a little bit of the? I guess that you've been involved in in this world for quite some time. Can you just give us a little sense of the the history of blockchain and and and, and this path over the last decade? Yeah, so it basically started, of course, as you said, with Bitcoin, which is a proof of work chain. And so I think that one of the big distinctions over time and uh, innovations that's happened is the moving from proof of work to proof of stake systems. So Bitcoin's kind of a very simple example of an initial use case, just launching a currency, 21 million tokens. And essentially all anyone is doing with a given Bitcoin is for the most part, storing them or buying and selling them on, on various exchanges. The way that it works is 
the network is secured by nodes. And so don't remember the last count, but I think that there's, you know, a well over 100,000 nodes operating as part of the Bitcoin network. And so what that means is someone's literally running a computer somewhere in the world, which is processing that chain and re- recording all of those transactions and processing the uh, the ones that are happening live. And the network essentially needs to agree with itself of is transaction 11, do 10, 100, you know, 100,000 of these nodes on the network agree that transaction 11 is the same across all of these different nodes. And so if that's not the case, you have what's called a 51% attack, which happens if someone were to gain control over the network. And so you might have, which in that case, then you could essentially add more Bitcoins to the system or or Paul could add a lot more Bitcoins to his wallet, you know, add a zero. Uh, so this is why having lots of nodes on a network is important, is that's essentially where the security comes from. Lots of copies of the ledger, exactly. right? Exactly. Different independent copies of that big blockchain. Yes, and you've got this idea that all of the miners, miners, which is now like running pools and consortiums, if they all got together, they could possibly be, do some nefarious stuff. So you've got the nodes, which are sort of the point of verification, all these these points of comparison of the ledger. The key bit about Bitcoin, and we don't need to get it too deep into it, but this is obviously the mining. This is where people are essentially creating these new hashes to create the next block in the chain, and that's rewarded by people being essentially given a block of Bitcoin. And that was the incentive for keeping the ledger going initially, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's the whole mining mechanism is really a reward for something that is intended to be a public good, such as the Bitcoin blockchain. The whole reward mechanism and uh, principles behind mining it is, as you said, just intended to, to pay rewards for people that are doing work that are adding stability to the network. So then comes along Ethereum in I think 2015, which was much more public in who was running it and who came up with it and had I think this was the next iteration of how blockchain could become more utilitarian in its in its usages out there. Right. And also yeah, more utilitarian, also greener as well. And so they the shift that Ethereum brought is number 1 smart contracts so going beyond just a currency and a store of value but but uh allowing developers using solidity to to put things embed things into a token or a smart contract that would be in you know typical paper-based contracts um which gave rise to a lot of other what they call dApps and decentralized applications and also Moving to a proof of stake system and away from proof of work means a lot less power consumption. You don't have to have every single computer in the world running the same copy of the chain in quite the same manual way that a proof of work system operates. And with proof of stake, it uh, introduces a staking and a slashing mechanism. So I believe for Ethereum, you need to have 35 Ethereum tokens to be able to be a validator on the network. And then if you're a validator, you're essentially staking those Ether tokens. And for every fee that's, or for every transaction that happens on the network, there's uh, gas fees that are created. So think of that almost like a Visa charging, say 1% of every transaction that happens. For every transaction that's happening on Ethereum, 
there are uh, gas fees and the validators earn a portion of those fees earned. And so um, if you're a bad actor, then there's an element of called slashing as well, where you can essentially be uh, financially penalized for, for trying to cheat the system. And it's a pretty effective method of validation and, and governance as sort of a, a V2. But of course, you know, smart contracts is a huge building block that gave rise to many more use cases beyond Bitcoin and also just the, the ERC-20 tokens in general, which Ethereum really allowed anyone in the world to create another token and embed the attributes and characteristics that they wanted to bring to life into that, which uh, uh, is kind of most in many of the tokens that we see trading today are Ethereum ERC-20 tokens, for example. Yeah. So there's there's two elements there I really want to draw out because one is the smart contracts and the other is just, just to get, I think, carry on with getting the terminology right. So Ethereum would be what I think you would call a layer one protocol. It's it's the blockchain. And then because it has this capability to take have more information held within it than just who owns the Bitcoin, you can embed these tokenized or these tokens in it that are more than just who owns what, but are actually these things smart contracts right so you a lot of what's out there on your coinbase app some of them like ethereum are actually these layer one protocols which are the enabling technology and others are just simply tokens that sit on an ethereum ecosystem exactly right okay got that right <laughs> I'm, I'm holding on smart contracts because this is really when we start to get into how unlocking the power of this of a blockchain and the ability to have this trustless system that enables trust and, and all those those things that smart contracts are really what unlocks that can you just give us an, an understanding of what smart contracts are and how in marketplaces these are really powerful tools yeah i'll give you maybe the most relevant and hopefully a simple example at the same time so when you think of exchanges like ice for example you have a traditional order book you have traditional liquidity providers like a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley. You have market makers, and these market makers need to, in a somewhat manual process, create bid-ask prices and maintain those during certain hours of the day, too. I think ICE is you know, something like 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., and you have to, if you're a liquidity provider and a market maker, you need to provide these bid-ask spreads in within 15-minute intervals um, based on some documentation that I've seen of theirs. Not sure how recent and up-to-date that is. But but if you go into a smart contract world, a great use case to bring that to life is you can essentially build and operate another exchange or a new form of an exchange that doesn't have an exchange. And so it kind of, <laughs> which this sounds crazy, but it's almost like you know, a taxi company that doesn't operate taxis in the case of of Uber, right? They're making a market of the taxis, but they're not actually, they don't own them or drive them. And so in the case of, uh, of a Uniswap, which is decentralized exchange, and it would be kind of like the future version of what might be possible with something like an ICE, there is no order book. There is no bid-ask spread. There is no centralized market maker. So it's almost the way to think of it is like an exchange that doesn't operate an exchange if we're using that Uber parallel again. And so what happens here is smart contracts are bringing liquidity providers together and anyone with you know a dollar in their pocket 
can create a new market in under five minutes, um, just visiting the website, adding any two tokens into a pool, creating what's called a trading pair, and then adding liquidity to both of those tokens. And so, you know, in this case, that there's smart contracts are at work behind the scenes, which are number one, of course, cataloging the two assets that are trading against each other. And number two, accounting for every dollar in the system, who put that dollar in, who owns that dollar, and which rewards are attributable to whose dollars that are at work in the system. And so to bring that to life, there's $8 billion in liquidity within that ecosystem across roughly 50,000 user-generated trading pairs and doing about $60 billion in trade volume per month which is earning that ecosystem roughly $180 million a month in fees being generated, which are being paid to these liquidity providers. So so that's almost a bit, the way that I, for non-crypto people, like to share that example is it's a bit of the difference between a Hyatt centralized hotelier or an Airbnb of where what Airbnb unlocked is all of this extra inventory and unique stays, you know, anything from a $10 million mansion in Malibu to an Airstream trailer on some glamping type piece of property. And now all of a sudden, all this inventory is on uh, available. And the person that posted that inventory, if that's my home in Malibu, I'm earning 85% of, of the revenue for for the nights that I'm booking. And so platforms like, you know, decentralized exchanges like a Uniswap enable for this same kind of shared value of the people that are creating the pools and the trading pairs are the ones that are also getting the rent um, as opposed to giving it to, you know, something like Coinbase, which is an example of a centralized exchange in crypto, which, you know, many of your listeners will know recently went public at a hundred billion dollar, like 60-ish billion dollar valuation. I think they were hoping to go for a hundred and it was a little bit, a little bit less than that. But that whole 60 billion in market cap is predicated on you know these exchange fees, which in a decentralized world utilizing smart contracts to tie back to your question, is how you essentially reallocate all of that value to a much broader ecosystem of participants that can participate in a in a platform like that. Hmm. And there's a couple of sort of things to just highlight there, right? At least from my understanding, previous discussions you and I have had. So there's so the, in effect, these are like these self-executing contracts. And you've got the sort of the theory is you're lowering transaction costs because you aren't going via an exchange that's taking rent. And you're also actually the nature of the contracts as well are simplified, which means they're only appropriate to certain types of transactions. You wouldn't necessarily want to do a, a really complex long-term leasing an oil rig on a smart contract, right? But in, in exchanges of goods and, and information, these things can really apply and lower transaction costs. They can also actually, as I understand it, make up for your dealing between jurisdictions where perhaps you don't have such a strong framework of law, this provides a better facility for remedies and all the rest of it and to trust the contract as opposed to having to trust on a, a central arbiter that will, will help you out if things go wrong. You mentioned right at the start, this idea of the concept of blockchain is to be able to have consensus trust 
as opposed to that sort of you know, and the single source of truth as opposed to reliant on, you know, an intermediary or an exchange to validate things. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's the it's the rails which allows a huge decentralized community of collaborators to take common actions and have trust in the system and be able to reliably earn the rewards, you know, take take little risk, right? And so no more risk than what they're used to dealing with in the course of their of their normal business, for example, but give rise to to a distributed, decentralized platform where where people can create more and new value in in new ways. I think, like for example, it would have been you know historically very difficult to be a market maker and and maybe you know hire a team, take all the actions that one might need to take to to be a market maker for a given commodity on something like ICE, whereas doing that on a decentralized exchange um, using that sort of framework just strips much of that complexity away but still gives and makes that value available to existing and new market participants that that might already be holding those assets it might be a commodity like oil or it might be a commodity like copper that now they can monetize in in new interesting ways while doing very little work and in some cases no work to monetize or to create value yeah because the the final bit about these smart contracts of course is that they are customizable to us down to a single entity right you can also start to build in a lot of attributes around your pair that is going to i guess unlock a lot of opportunity rather than it just being in, in this case you know a barrel of oil it can also be a barrel of oil from this location at this carbon footprint this esg impact and, and i guess pressing some of what we're going to come on to. But it is true that those smart contracts, whilst they're limited in certain ways, they don't like ambiguity by the nature of the code. They also allow you to to code in a lot more attributes on any given, whatever it is on Uniswap that you're looking to trade. Exactly. And I think that what you touched on there is, in my opinion, one of the things that just gets me most excited about the commodity space in general is that unlocks the ability to take something that has a static contract, which is largely closed to external development, and it makes it, A, it's the thing that's probably most shocking to you know listeners that maybe aren't so familiar with crypto, is this all sounds really complex, but if, if we were to actually take you through the workflow associated with creating a, some of these trading pairs and, and providing liquidity, it's just incredible to see how, you know, literally some of this stuff is like 60 seconds or less time to do. But then, as you said, it's what are all of the combinations of an oil trade or a copper trade that a global marketplace might take across, you know, all of the languages that we have as a uh, as global citizens, across all of the currencies that we have as global citizens, across all of the corporate goals and objectives that we have from from Apple to say a Procter, a P&G or a Walmart or a Tesla, it gives rise to the end customers and the end buyers being able to vote with their wallet, literally even being able to create the trading pairs for the commodities that they want to buy based on the attributes and features that they want to see present. And then, as you said, that spans could be what's the currency that it's trading against, what's the location, what's the continent that the product is located on, you know, is it supporting uh, female-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses? Is how much of the production is 
green and offset, carbon neutral, provenance, all these types of attributes. What kind of a ship was it on? Was it a LNG ship? Was it a, you know, a heavy fuel oil ship that this was transported on? Apple released not long ago on Earth Day sort of their their uh, parameters for for how they want to obtain assets and commodities and so you know for the things that go into their products and so they are from an end to end standpoint uh, evaluating how it's designed how it's made how it's shipped how it's used and how it's recycled and that's a really elegant way of putting it but my view and our team's view is that all of these companies have a plan like this, whether it's Google, whether it's you know Salesforce, Microsoft, Tesla, everyone is basically uh, starting to verbalize these same types of intentions and voting with their wallet and, and a blockchain, smart contracts, and all of these capabilities give rise to what is quite likely to feel like in some parallels, you know, almost like a Airbnb-ish marketplace of buyers being able to post what they want, what they're willing to buy, and really changing up this centralized version of commodities as we've known it to be historically and really making it more individual and uh, participant driven, which will be really powerful. So I I wanted to dig into those those various streams about how this type of technology could provide a lot of benefits and disrupt and change the nature of commodities. And I think there's almost a consensus that in 20 years, this is more than likely how markets will work. It's probably one of when and who rather than if, I think, at this point. One thing I just want to get straight in my head, and apologies, <laughs> this is this is going around again, but just in terms of the mechanism, those pairs do individuals present the pair that they're willing to transact or do companies or individuals present their side of the pair and then someone else will, the smart contract will pair it up? Yeah, good question. So in a world such as this, number one, anyone can create a pair and anyone can join an existing pair. And so, and you're not, and there's no penalty for for joining a pair late that's all that already exists or even that perhaps your your arch nemesis or competitor has even created there's you can absolutely benefit from their work on the platform and, and within the system and so as an example maybe uh we'll take a pair on uniswap like usdc which is just a stable coin it's a token that represents a us dollar trading against Ethereum. So on the one hand, you've got token one, the US dollar, and then on the other side, token two, which is Ethereum. That's the top trading pair on Uniswap. And it has about 230 million in liquidity locked up in that, what is a smart contract to bring all this to life. And so that 230 million might be allocated from, let's say, 20,000 unique individuals and doing roughly 620 million per day in volume. And most recently, because the crypto markets are going crazy, the fees generated from that particular trading pool over the last 24 hours is $1.8 million in fees earned. And so in, in a 24-hour period of time for you know only $229 million of liquidity locked up in a in a smart contract. So while that's really high because the volume is kind of spiking, typically these fees 
tend to hover around 30 to 40% that uh, liquidity providers are earning pro rata. So what that means is if the US dollar Ethereum trading pair did not exist, I as a user could come and create it um, and add the first, say, $10,000 of liquidity to that liquidity pool that has $230 million in it now. Or if I were late to that party, then I could simply you know, allocate a million dollars down the road. And there's really no there's really no penalty for being late because for every dollar that anyone puts in, whether it's the first actor, um, the first liquidity provider, or person number 100, each participant is simply earning fees pro rata to their weighted capital in that total pool. So, you know, so mm-hmm. if I came in and I put in a, wrote a check today for say a hundred million, then I would effectively be earning 50% of all of the fees being generated from that trading pair. You know, if these numbers are any baseline, you know, you'd be looking at one would have earned roughly about a million dollars in fees um, over the last 24 hours. But again, the volatility is unusually high today of all days. So, And that, just so I understand, that's the gas. Great question. So with Uniswap, so now that takes us back to kind of a protocol versus a layer two protocol. And so so a layer one, Uniswap's of course running on Ethereum, and but Uniswap itself, uh, the fees that are being generated there, the, the business model for a decentralized exchange such as Uniswap is they charge 30 basis points for every transaction that happens. So whether it's buy, sell, so that 1.8 million is being generated as a that represents 30 basis points of of the volume over the last 24 hours. So 624 million in volume, multiply that by by 30 basis points, and it gets you to the fees. Um, and so that's that's the fees generated at the Uniswap level, which is paid in a utility token called Uniswap, and mainly or called the Uni token, and primarily because of course you can't earn fiat currencies in a smart contract. So you need to use tokens when you're operating in a blockchain world. And so you simply need to be paid in tokens. But all of these trades to go down one more layer are also happening on the Ethereum network. Which is where the validators are then getting the gas. Correct. In. So you've got the utility token there that is 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 set up and designed by the designer to generate revenue and how it's meant to be generate revenue. And we'll come on to the I guess the jurisprudence and the regulations around how that can actually be done. But, you know, the layer one protocol, the, the Ethereum in this case, still needs those validators, the equivalent of the nodes in Bitcoin and the miners and so forth. And they're the ones that get the gas in quotes as their reward for that validation of the of the system itself. Right. And so for something like so the simple way to think of Uniswap is I guess uh, for those that are not coming from a crypto background, one way to think of something like Ethereum in general, you could almost use the Apple App Store as a placeholder of it's a platform. Anyone can build an app on top of that platform. And Apple, their monetization strategy, they charge any app developer 30% of whatever app you build on the platform. Then you've got an app like, you know, let's use Uber as the example, right? Then you have an Uber and Uber says, well, we have our own our own business model here. We charge 15% of every taxi ride that's 
that's delivered. So, so with the conversation that we just had, we're very much in the Uniswap universe and realm, and that would be, you know, kind of a, a stand-in for an app like, let's say, Uber on Apple. And for every transaction that's happening on Uniswap, as you rightly pointed out, it's generating gas for for token holders and, well, specifically validators on the Ethereum platform. And Uniswap, given that it's one of the, the larger apps doing more volume within the Ethereum network, does roughly 25% of the total volume on Ethereum. So if you think of Ethereum like a highway, one out of every four cars going down the road that day is a Uniswap transaction. And Uniswap pays Ethereum validators roughly eight and a half million per day in gas fees that that uh, those you know Uniswap cars flying down the Ethereum highway are effectively paying in tolls. And then that is, and then as you said, so that's it gets a little complicated because you've got to track two business models in parallel of the the revenue and mechanics of Uniswap itself. And then because that sits on top of Ethereum, how that how that uh, relates to the Ethereum network and Ethereum uh, validators as well in those, those fees that are being generated. I think we've got the basics down. You've got the layer one protocol. Ethereum is, is an example, but not the only one. You've got the utility tokens on top of that, or the you know the the apps on the app store, so to speak, that are designed to generate their own revenues or accomplish their own goals, and they're being those transactions or whatever it is is being validated by that layer one protocol. There are there are some challenges just in general as we're still talking at a generalized level around blockchain, as it relates to sort of regulation, jurisprudence. I mean, and this is we could, we'll do another deep dive on this we've got a smart contracts episode coming up, but. One is about smart contracts themselves. At some point, they always run into regulation or you know, the state is always an overseas a contract at some level. And you've also got this issue of as soon as transactions hit fiat currencies, then you've got more oversight coming in as well. Can you just help us understand a little bit about some of the constraints around smart contracts and some of the challenges? Yeah, and I guess you know, in broad brushstrokes, I'd say a lot of that really stems from just basic KYC AML requirements. And so it's it's sort of overlaying all of the reasons and needs that we have these things in the tr- traditional banking industry into the crypto industry. Because of, of course, we don't want bad actors laundering money or we don't want sanctioned individuals participating in these platforms. So it's some of that stuff sounds really scary, but at the, at the end of the day, the way I think of it is, you know, it's all pretty simple actually it's really just kind of boils down to remapping much of what exists in the traditional banking industry into the into the blockchain world and for literally the same motivations and and use cases of of why those regulations and and requirements became a need in the first place so and and then as you rightly pointed out because this is new a lot of that is just emergent uh regulation across jurisdictions um, in particular in some countries jumping on this much faster than others some well past the implementation where i feel like for example in switzerland you can literally pay your your personal income tax in bitcoin uh, to the government whereas in in other countries it's uh much more nascent and they're still kind of getting their arms around it and and how they 
want to create the the rules. So, yeah, I think that that's a an exciting space to be. I think uh, we we were working very closely with the SEC in 2017 as part of the work that that we were doing at Blockstack in particular. And we were the first company to go through what was called a reggae plus filing process, which essentially is kind of known as the mini IPO, you know, but this was something that uh, if you don't know the answers to these questions, it's, uh, you know, best to just go ask. And, And in our case, as a small startup at that time, we literally, literally went and knocked on the door of the SEC and just said, hey, there isn't regulation or guidance for these things that we're wanting to do. Can you lean in and and uh, help us with some of these things? So, and mm. I think that it kind of pays to be early on these things, and and especially pays to to be collaborative and to be open and and working with the regulators and and of course doing everything above board because it's uh you know in my past experience as just a small startup these are not scary organizations or scary people. And it's uh, quite the opposite of just really helpful and happy to lean in, uh, even though we don't often associate that with um, government. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I think that brings us nicely up to talk about, okay, these applications directly into the commodities markets and and what ultimately NEO and, and your group are attempting to do. As far as I see it, there are kind of three main branches of where there are clear positives and opportunities. One is really what we've been talking mostly about, which is this DEX, a a decentralized exchange, lowering transaction costs, increasing liquidity, increasing trust in a system. And actually, commodities would appear to fit quite well into that based on, you know, in the big picture, these are relatively simple transactions, priced for a certain amount of good, a type of good, loaded at a certain place, etc. The other one is is DeFi, decentralized finance. And the final one is really around that bringing in the ESG attributes, the provenance, these things that you kind of alluded to that Apple and similar organizations, in fact, the world is now looking for. I, I feel like, so I feel like we've covered the decks. And I think like we can see clear comparisons with what's going on with Uniswap that you mentioned, but there is a clear use case for tokenization to create a decentralized exchange in the commodities market. Can you dig into DeFi? What what exactly is DeFi and how could that how does that link in with this with you know this subject? So DeFi is really the ability for the first building block is what happens when you have all of these decentralized participants that can exchange a token anywhere in the world when so many of these are rooted in, you know, it's dollar stable coins or some store of tradable value. So what now what can you essentially start to do with all of this roughly two, three trillion dollars of, of liquidity? Uh, and this kind of introduces the concept of, of DeFi, of what are all the creative, innovative ways that you can kind of steer this uh, giant blob of, of liquidity. And so one use case uh, that I've been quite close to and working on has been lending and lending pools. And so uh, since December, roughly about 400 million has gone out the door in uncollateralized loans that we've been involved in. And, and so what that allows for is, again, you know, anyone can back some of these loans. Uh, many of them are to crypto traders. And an example of a loan might be a literally you know, $10 million loan for a 30-day period of time 
with a 14% interest rate. So where that 10 million comes from, it's essentially being crowdsourced from a large group of lenders. It could be one lender that provides all 10 million, or it could be 1,137 people that pool their collective resources to ring the bell on that $10 million loan and get it out the door for a 30-day period of time. So you can kind of see how that would really uh, disrupt things like trade finance. And for many of these groups where access to capital is a huge part of their businesses or just simply what they can buy in the first place. Uh, And one could also imagine if there were a whole new and uh, large group of of new types of businesses uh, and entities that now have access to credit such as this, what does that look like? Uh, How does that change the market of this new class and group of buyers? And then also for companies that have a very strong balance sheet and a really great existing relationship with with you know hundreds or maybe even thousands of of large customers is this and could this be a really interesting source of new revenue for these types of organizations that you know may be doing 100 million dollar deals with a counterpart for 10 plus years they are perfect candidates to put a toe in the water in this realm and essentially earn new revenue from counterparts that they're already taking uh, you know, some element of risk with and already have a high degree of trust with. So from a trade finance perspective in the commodities world, as I understand it, it kind of gets DeFi comes into play because you've got the, the distributed ledger that allows everyone to understand the details of the transaction and trust that that transaction ha- will occur or has occurred. You know, and, and who the participants are. Everything's traceable, which has been obviously one. Of, you know, the the story in of in the commodities world over the last couple of years has been decreasing liquidity, as more and more banks have gotten out of trade finance due to either ESG concerns or over um, issues that have blow ups and all the rest of it, and missing missing metal and so forth, making you know increasing the risks. Um, so you've got that trust factor there that's very that's transparent, so people can account for the risks. And also the other bit about blockchain technology is that um, you have this ability to own fractions of the token, right? So actually, in the same way that you could own 0.001% of an Ethereum coin token, you can do the same in this trade. So actually, it democratizes finance in that all of us as individuals theoretically would have the ability to finance an aspect of a commodity trade or whatever trade it might be. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that as you as you pointed out, it gives rise to a lot of capabilities simultaneously. One, it's a lot more liquidity coming into the system and a clear path for those that are providing it to monetize it. They're literally getting their pro rata share of the interest rate over the period of time to the person that they are lending to. Also, as you mentioned, it gives groups that are activist investors you're seeing more and more groups like the you know black rocks of the world that are voting with their wallets on you know what stocks will they buy i that's kind of about it for the granularity that the traditional markets are operating at right now if you could either essentially kind of like whitelist a stock or blacklist a stock of to say that we don't think that this is a good actor we don't support how their what their footprint is or 
what their values are. So we're either going to not buy or or buy that stock if if the converse is true, if we think that they're a great actor. But what things like this allow for is a much deeper level of granularity of where a group like a BlackRock can get into literally providing the capital behind a specific trade that's being financed with a specific ship going from point A to point B. And maybe they say, you know, we love this, uh, supporting these LNG ship uh, with a lower lower footprint, but it just allows for individual actors to go much deeper into the value chain. A company like an Apple, for example, could be staking or essentially setting the standards for the values and that they want to bring to life, and then even applying liquidity to the market uh, to make that more accessible to others, whether that's a certain grade of a metal that they're consuming or whether that's a just elevating the the attributes and the products and and the sustainability metrics that they want to bring to life and not doing that just giving it lip service but doing it for profit which is really important and so mm. i think that that uh, only speeds up that version of of the future, which we all want to see happen. And, you know, it's our firm belief that things like DeFi and and DEXs are real big cans of gas that help bring that future to life because you're able to turn a profit um, by doing good, which is really, really powerful. Which is, I think, where I get excited, you know, and, and through from our conversations over time, is when you start to piece this all together, it starts to look really, really powerful from a energy transition perspective, because you've got the DEX there that is, okay, it's doing great things, you know, it's lowering costs for market participants, it's enabling more transactions to happen in a more trust-filled environment and transparent environment. But really, what that starts to do is to allow people to, in the smart contracts, apply the attributes and have those attributes verified that they consider potentially valuable, right? Then you've got the DeFi piece that allows people to fund those types of pairs, those transactions that are with a values-based system as well. And you you end up at organizations being able to, rather than historically, right, all cobalt ending up in the same storage facility or same battery, you start to come you start to decommoditize commodities by enabling organizations to say, no, my cobalt comes from Missouri. And therefore, you know, the mar- we can see what the market will bear in terms of a premium as a result of that. Or my my oil was drilled by an organisation that does carbon offsetting, that is, you know, this, that, and the other, and and the market will be able to start enabling you to price those things in, which, as you say, should speed up the capacity for the markets to start paying for energy transition, which has a huge price tag attached to it. And if customers can't signal what they're interested in buying, and, and that's very hard to overcome. Exactly. And it's, it's, uh, it's really the confluence of many new market participants all operating together. So whereas in the past, maybe you have governments, banks, and producers, say, playing a really large role in the future, you're bringing in entirely new groups that never had a role to play in the in the commodity supply chain, like, you know, easy example, software developers, 
or liquidity providers or the end purchaser, like the apples of the world. And, and then all of these other attributes and, and things that you can add on to them or pension funds and some of these other groups that can become more and more um, active. Yeah. And then, and you're giving all of these groups and this huge mushrooming group of, of market participants, the ability to, to define exactly what they want purely for their own purposes, whether that's, you know, based on, as we said, location, price, grades of the commodity that they're buying, they can get further in the weeds of what exactly that is. Like, for example, uh, some of the work that Apple's doing, they, they want to buy recycled lithium and they want to have as much recycled lithium going into their future batteries as possible. And so one could see how, you know, Apple could release a new type of a contract, which is this is the version of recycled lithium that we will buy. These are the the allotments of this much to take physical delivery. We would prefer it to be in you know this geographic location so that the cost of shipping and and really uh, footprint of shipping is is lower. And you can see how you know a company like Apple could really create a standard around that, and how the market more broadly could either make changes to that they could essentially or they could just double down on on what is the apple standard and be part of those liquidity pools that apple has created um, those avenues and pathways to provide financing or provide liquidity to a trading pair such as that and at no penalty for being second third or 57 so whereas the exchanges have been trying to introduce you know various contracts with attributes attached from an environmental standpoint the concern there is always there's a, there's a validation concern of course which still exists in blockchain right to get on the blockchain someone's got to validate mm-hmm. it but actually their concern is really one of liquidity and an and uptake whereas in this framework i'd be right in saying you know apple could put that pair on there and maybe you know only one organization meets it meets it that still it doesn't you know, the costs aren't so prohibitive that that isn't a reasonable outcome. Exactly. And I think that I really see the role of these new market participants as being that of defining what the new commodities are, right? I mean, it's, it's a, if we were to look back in time, it isn't really all that long ago that oil, A, wasn't even a known useful commodity, and then B, certainly wasn't being produced at the scales that we've seen in the last 20 years, for example, that's like a you know, rocket ship ride up in number of, of producers and um, governments and, and um, companies just sourcing more and more of this, of this commodity. And so, so I think what, what this really gives rise to is for, for that same type of dynamic to take hold again for all sorts of other commodities, whether that's recycled lithium batteries or whether that's recycled aluminum or whether that's, you can kind of see how you could apply that sort of thinking of how does one create global demand for things that are new good and that we can't expect that to be defined by a relatively small group of market participants that simply don't even have the the knowledge or insight that many of these more complex uh, or specialist type of organizations have, you know, so we, I don't think we can expect to have such a, a, a small number of, of standards or choices 
when the world is as big as it is and the use cases are as wide. And this gives those organizations, what's fascinating about, I guess, the conversation in general is that this is providing agency to the current commodity market participants to come up with much more diverse and much more specific contracts without some of the historical headaches of, can I get that on the exchange? Or then, in which case, I'm going to the OTC market um, and all the costs that that entails and you know whether that's legal costs or whatever it might be. So... This is, I think we've probably got a part two in us just talking about the other things that can, we've really just talked about the, I guess, the the DEX aspect to this. There's also the world of decentralized apps, other things that can start being built in. And you know, I think I'd love to have you back on to talk about that because there's much more, I guess, coming from especially your, your work in the background, you know, the, the stuff you did with um, Startup Weekend. There's a lot more ingenuity that can be unlocked by this type of technology, as I understand it. There, there is a couple of potential challenges here, or at least things that I think get raised frequently. And you know, just in my time in the commodities markets, you know, or, or as a headhunter in the commodities markets, you know, people talking about this. One is the capacity of the layer one protocol to deal with the high volumes of transactions, and I and I think that's something that you know, that that, that is, you've addressed or addressing in that. Some of this is unlocked by having to design new layer one protocols to actually be, you know, to ca- to capture all of the, um, to, to enable and unlock this capacity you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And so and, uh, from a, you know, from a, from a technical standpoint, what you're asking is a bit like, well, what's the right highway to put through the middle of Los Angeles? Is it a, you know, is it a one lane road and there's only one of them that everyone needs to drive on to get to where they're going? Or does that road system to handle all the throughput and people and volume, or does that need to be, you know, 15 lanes in both directions with lots of exit ramps to take all of these other arteries to get from point A to point B? And of course, that's that's our view of the world. You know, one of the problems with, with Ethereum is it literally does operate a bit more like a, you know, a single lane highway going through Los Angeles that everyone has to take no matter where they're going, which results in, you know, slow transaction times, high transaction fees, a lot of these sorts of problems. And so we're literally working with the inventors of the technology that have built the back end for literally one of the world's largest exchanges today that has been pioneering the the path of of uh, accounting for lower transaction fees, higher throughput, and of course, you know, the security needs uh, and all of these sorts of things as well. And so, yeah, that's something that's a big part of of why we're building uh, what we're building. Yeah. And then security is a whole nother subject, but um, you touched a little bit on at the start about sort of uh, how things have moved on since the since Bitcoin. But the, the other one I think that's really pertinent discussion is power consumption. I think looking at Ethereum the other day, it uses more power than the country of Peru just to, to you know, to validate the system. Bitcoin, again, with the, you know, the miners, you know, the, how that's evolved. What direction is, is power consumption going when it comes to blockchain and blockchain technology? And is that ultimately going to be prohibitive when kind of the, uh, the goal here is, is not only to, to better enable the commodity trading, but also to tackle some of these ESG issues? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I think that for, for 
That I'd say is sort of a architecture choice today of, as you rightly pointed out, Bitcoin is incredibly uh, energy intensive and sort of uh, wasteful system. If you look at it from a from a power consumption standpoint, you even have you know Elon Musk being quite active and vocal about about that in recent days. Much to their own detriment of own of having bought a billion dollars of Bitcoin. As I say, crushing all of our crypto exactly. wallets at the same time. And so, <laughs> but pointing out a real flaw. And so, I think just the kind of tip of the spear proof of stake systems really get around that, um, especially running networks that maybe don't have um, so many validators, because then you're literally talking about well, how many nodes are operating on the network. Who are they? Um, I mean, of course, you could run a blockchain with one computer, right? One validator, or you could run a blockchain with a hundred. So you you don't necessarily need to go as wide or as broad as as the number of validators that a network like Ethereum might have. And so that you know, there's some elements of being so open that it's really redundant, and so and then wasteful at a certain point, right? So it's it's a bit like um, plastic bottles versus you know versus uh, bring your aluminum canteen around and and uh, stop all of that waste. So there, yeah, there's lots of ways for for improvement in that in that system, and I think that that's really the genesis of it is is protocols and projects that are making decisions around well, how open and democratic do we want to be versus is there a need and do we want to be a bit more closed off. For all of these types of reasons, for for governance reasons, for you know security, transaction throughput, you know speed, all of these issues, and so the more validators and nodes that you have, the the slower that the network tends to be, and the more uh, the, those barriers go go up. So it's it's a bit of a you know you're always making trade offs, whatever the decision, but it's it's just about designing a system that is making the best trade offs for a given use case. And I think what I would say, you know, kind of confidently, well, very confidently in, in response to this just train of thought is there hasn't really been a blockchain that's been developed or thought through through the lens of uh, the commodity industry. Right. And so I think that literally at this point in time, uh, much of the nascent use cases, applications being built literally on top of blockchains like Ethereum, which have a lot of technical debt over the years of uh, this, which comes by virtue of being essentially first, hugely successful, and then having to carry, you know, that backpack full of rocks that you've filled up. Uh, and in many ways, it is absolutely a backpack full of rocks when you look at it through the lens of use cases like the commodity industry might have. And knowing everything that we know now, if one could start from scratch with some of the best and brightest minds in the world that invented this stuff, what might one do? And that's the space that we're occupying now, which is pretty fun. It's been a fascinating discussion, Clint. I certainly know that there's going to be a lot of interest in this. I, I recognize it's a, it's a complex subject and we've kind of skated through over an hour, but I think it's clear to the listeners, uh, and certainly to me, the opportunity here in terms of what this type of technology could do to unlock 
the a number of aspects of the commodities markets, not least, I think, the ability for organizations, buyers, producers to price in these environmental a- attributes. We as an organization, HC, are certainly interested in that's how you and I started to talk a few months back about this community aspects to this, there's talent aspects. Maybe we'll cover that on a, on a second podcast around decentralized apps. And we'll put a link in the in the show notes for um, to Neo, so that people can find you, and I think they can register some interest there. Obviously, you're still in the startup stage. I wonder if, before we let you go, there's sort of you give us a, a final thought or talk to us a little bit about what gets you so excited about having come from the crypto world now looking at the commodity space. So the, the thing that I'm most excited about with uh, the commodities use case in crypto is just the the scale, and I really feel like that of, of many of the use cases, commodities is is one that's not yet come on chain. That that, in my opinion, is really kind of the killer app for the for the for the ecosystem. And so you have a lot of these meme coins, or literally three guys in a garage kind of stories, hitting twenty plus billion dollar market caps in in right around twelve months, and there's not really a real business need or use case underlying some of these some of these stories so i think for commodities in particular it really is just the perfect storm of value creation in this kind of in this kind of an environment it's the it's the killer the killer use case with a real business model high number of transactions and a real need for these types of attributes whether it's esgs or provenance um, liquidity being provided uh, on and on and on. It really is the the marketplace that needs the app store, in my opinion. Um, and and it's eye watering to see the valuations of of some of these existing crypto companies that that overshadow even some major commodity or or producers, trading houses. Yeah, and I think that once uh, the commodity industry comes on board, that'll be pretty interesting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thanks. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.